Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike DeSop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. Our guests this week are David Billings and Chip Perrin from Coastal Plains Meat Company based in Eunice, Louisiana. As the largest harvest facility in Louisiana with a growing direct-to-consumer e-commerce platform and a custom processing capability, Chip and David are working to solve what they described as a processing bottleneck in the state of Louisiana for Louisiana producers. Their joint backgrounds in military service and cattle production provide them a level of leadership and practical experience not typically found in a localized meat processing and packaging space. In this episode, we get into both Chip and David's military background and their somewhat serendipitous meeting at a Young Entrepreneurs Conference in Houston. We also talk about the consumer preferences that they're seeing, pushing up against the traditional business model of middlemen being able to choose what consumers can and cannot buy from the grocery store, and more towards a direct-from-the-farm preference with grass-finished or all-natural. We also talk about this feedback loop that's made possible through a facility like Coastal Plains directly to the producer uh, regarding things like yield and quality data, which ultimately help the producer make better decisions about their breeding programs, inputs, genetics, production cycles, etc. We also get into this educational role that Coastal Plains has found themselves in as providers of insight to their cattle producers to help them better understand their consumers, which ultimately help determine their process and procedures. Finally, we look at their, the origins of their e-commerce platform from what was a small pilot program in a targeted market segment to a reliable additional revenue stream that now ships across the state. Enjoy. I was born and raised in, uh, in Louisiana, uh, raised in South Louisiana. Um, uh, Karen Crow uh, is where I grew up, went to school. I graduated, graduated high school, uh, joined the Army, uh, actually joined before I graduated high school. Um, uh, I was 17, I had to have my mom there with me when I signed my paperwork. Uh, graduated high school and shipped out um, right there in, in June, as soon as we graduated. Um, spent uh, eight years, uh, some active, some inactive. Uh, deployment uh, into Iraq when we first went in there, uh, 2004. Uh, time frame and um, came back, redeployed back home, uh, I guess ETS out of the Army 2006. And, uh, and, and that's where I, I, uh, I met Chip. Uh, he and I both uh, at a Houston Young Entrepreneurs Conference. So kind of how we got started. And I do want to explore how you ended up at a, a Young Entrepreneurs Conference uh, in Houston. So I think that's an interesting connection. Why? Yeah. David, before I, I give Chip an opportunity here just to sort of give us a sense of some, some of your early thoughts, why the desire to serve? My family um, is steeped in military history. Um, I think I've, we've gone back now uh, almost to the 
you know, the, the American Indians, um, where great, great, great grandfather was, you know, um, some warrior. So when you kind of go back through my, my, uh, lineage, um, especially, you know, my dad, my grandpa, my great grandpa, um, these are all men who served our country and served our country well, and, and, and different, uh, um, different branches of the military. So I feel like it's, it's always been a generational calling. Um, you know, however, let's, let's not, let's not forget, you know, uh, for, for one minute that, you know, growing up, it was, uh, it was tough. My dad passed when I was 12. And so, you know, there was a lot of things that I feel, um, um, uh, I didn't have available. Um, and so, you know, the military for me just, just seemed to be a, a great fit and something for me to just pivot into. Um, you know, we were a very poor family, didn't have a whole lot. And so it, it, uh, it, it gave me an opportunity to, you know, to, to get out and go see, you know, go see the world, um, but also kind of follow in, in you know, my, my family heritage. It's really interesting to hear those sort of connections between uh, father figure type mentors and and military service. Um, my my parents divorced when I was you know three or four years old, and so I was you were raised by. And then as I moved into high school, I had a JROTC instructor who was a retired master sergeant, yeah. and that, in a lot of ways, kind of filled that gap for me in some ways. Uh, but doing this podcast over the last few year or so, that point of father figure mentor role has sort of come up in a lot of ways. Uh, and so I'm glad you kind of highlighted that again, Chip, give us some background, man. Yeah. So, uh, I grew up in a, on a cattle ranch in Henry, Louisiana, which is, uh, about 30 miles South of Lafayette. A lot of people don't even think there's anything South of Lafayette, but, uh, but there's some cattle ranches out there and I grew up on one of them, uh, had a real good childhood, you know, I mean, worked hard, had two parents that, you know, both worked hard and, uh, you know, to get us kind of what we needed. Uh, I had two grandfathers that served in World War II in the Pacific. So one was in the Navy, one was in the Marine Corps. Uh, and both of them had cattle ranches. So I would work with them, for them, uh, all growing up uh, and, you know, to include my dad. And so that, you know, as far as military uh, influence, I think it started there. Uh, then as I got older, you know, into high school, one of my best friends, his dad is a Marine, served in Vietnam, and his older brother joined the Marine Corps. And his older brother was a great guy, kind of a knucklehead. <laughs> and, uh, and then when I saw him come back, right, I don't know if it was on boot leave or maybe, you know, he was in the fleet and had come back, but he came to our school. And, and he was in his, in his deltas, I mean, looking sharp, this dude, you know, and I said when he was a knucklehead, he was just, he was a crazy kid like the rest of us. And when he came back, this dude was squared away. I was like, all right, well, I want to be like that. And so started talking to my parents about, you know, joining the service. And I looked at the Army, looked at the Marine Corps, um, and I was really leaning towards Marine Corps just because of my, you know, my friend's. Uh, brother and my grandfather being in the Marine Corps. So I uh, started leaning that way, went to college, tried college for uh, 
a year and a half, I was on the powerlifting team at UL and Lafayette. Uh, did well there, but I just really wasn't finding, you know, that I was hitting my passion. And honestly, didn't know what the heck I was going to do once I graduated college. So started talking to the Marine Corps. 9-11 happens. Of course, that puts fast forward on everything. Once 9-11 happened, I was like, I got to get in. So I signed, I ended up signing the papers uh, in October, and I was in boot camp in December 2001. So went through my Marine Corps career, uh, did a couple tours in Afghanistan once I got to the fleet. Uh, once I got off of active duty, uh, I ran into to David at this conference. And we were lucky enough to, to be seated at the same table. And, uh, and after the conference was over, you know, after that session was over, we kind of kind of looked at this guy and I was like, man, he's, he's got it going on. He's probably about my age. I need to link up with this dude. And so we met up at the bar and that's when our relationship started. We started doing business together. Uh, eventually he worked for the same company uh, several times and, you know, led us to this point uh, to start corporate clients. Yeah. The, those kinds of sort of what seems to be serendipitous, like connections and paths that intersect, it's, it's hard to explain how valuable those can become those paths can't intersect if you're not if you don't take the chance and kind of go and and you know, put yourself out there in some respect so those are really important and they're hard to sort of communicate how valuable they can be um so anyway i guess the point there is just allow your path to sort of go sometimes and take that chance because you never know where it where it may lead in some respects. Chip and I's uh, professional careers um, really has been spent in oil and gas, uh, oil, gas, and chemicals. Um, and so for the last, I don't know, 20 plus years, um, he and I have spent, you know, more time on on planes and at, and at conferences together than I can count. Uh, but this particular event was, um, was a large oil and gas conference in Houston uh, it's an annual deal, um, and as part of this conference, um, there was uh, there was a um, uh, a young entrepreneur element of it, and so they brought in senior executives, and we're talking CEOs, presidents, CFOs, COOs, and and there were several roundtables, um, and and we had an opportunity. Uh, different groups of individuals would get up and move around these tables, and had an opportunity to meet you know these senior executives. Um, and just, you know, there were different topics uh, on different tables. And I remember the, the, the kind of table that Chip and I were at um, when kind of we first met each other was the CFO of Transocean, was a drilling contractor. Um, and he was talking about time management. Um, and so I think we spent 10 minutes at each table um, and they had kind of a, um, a break. And, and, and at the break, you know, that's when we walked outside and, uh, you know, kind of officially met each other. So, yeah, it, it, it was all, for me, it was, you know, kind of ETS and out of the military, um, kind of getting back. I had some reserve time, so I had, a, you know, was in the oil and gas industry already working for a, a project management and engineering company. Um, and it was a way for me to kind of, you know, reach out, network, um, and connect with others kind of in the space, um, just coming back from, you know, from, from a deployment. So, um, yeah. How did you, David, how'd you move from the oil and gas background into ultimately 
the cattle and then the meat processing space. I know that that chip has a background there. No, it's kind of it's kind of one of those things where you know I mean we both had cattle, uh, both you know had the, the cattle and beef background, and and I guess just to kind of uh, underscore what Chip said, Mike, you know I I grew up. I grew up on uh, on a commercial cattle operation, you know, out in Karen Crow. Um, and so um, I also worked on two very large commercial cattle operations while I was in high school, um, Got it. You know, as well as part of their horse training uh, program and stuff as well. Made it through my career and, and you know, did pretty well for myself and was able to, um, you know, to kind of branch out and, and afford my own place. Um, and so, um, I, I, I bought a ranch in Texas. Um, I've been in Texas for probably the last, I don't know, 16, 17 years. Um, but my heart is in, in Louisiana, which is where my partner and my company is. Um, but I, um, I have a ranch in Texas. My son, um, just graduated high school. He'll be going to, um, to Texas A&M. And so we're literally about 20 minutes from, from Texas A&M and, and um yeah so we breed uh, cattle out uh, here okay we'll be feeding them out out here and 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 ultimately vertically integrating you know the the ranch through the um through the plant got it okay because i was thinking what the connection was between that cattle operation out near the bryan college station area and your facility out near near louisiana but it seems like there's an input type relationship there yeah, the way that we the way that we try to explain this is, you know, Coastal Plains Meat Company, um, it, it's it's totally removed from my cattle business as well as Chip's cattle business. Um, Coastal Plains Meat Company is there to remove the bottleneck, the processing bottleneck in the state of Louisiana for Louisiana producers. Oh, 99% of it we're buying from other cattlemen. So a lot of people have talked to me and say, hey, how's the cattle business? I'm like, hey, cattle business is good. Beef business is great. You know, and so I'm as a cattleman, I mean, we're going through the same things that any other cattlemen are, are dealing with. And, you know, certainly as a newer company, we can't afford to go and pay ourselves premium for our cattle. So, you know, we've got to be competitive with ourselves as well. And, you know, buying cattle at the right price, uh, even when it's our own cattle. No, it's a, it's a good point, uh, Chip and David, to sort of break apart that separation, if you will, between your personal cattle assets and and then the meat processing facility. But you know, from my perspective, having that operator background, if you will, gives you a tremendous uh, understanding of what that producer needs. Well, certainly. I mean, because I, I've seen people in the in the beef business that maybe really don't know their way around cattle, and then people in the cattle business that you know they they walk into to our plant and you know see the carcasses and the operation, and I mean they've never seen all that. Uh, so it's really been great to a bring our resources on staff at, at coastal plains and bring them to the cattlemen or the cattlemen to them so they can understand what it is in our operation but at the same time when i'm talking to cattlemen when i'm talking to suppliers into our business it helps me you know speak their language yeah and i think outside of the cattlemen um you know kind of chip and i uh, taking our operator experience, if you will, our operations experience on our own cattle farms, ranches, um, to the, to, you know, to the next level of understanding the consumer and understanding beef products and quality grades and yield grades and things of that nature. 
Um, as you mentioned, you know, some producers don't understand any of that. And so we're educating, we're constantly educating. But I think, I think one of the opportunities that, that we have here and, you know, we're continuing to improve how we do it is, um, is, to, is to educate the consumer about the products that they're, that they're actually, you know, that they're actually taking in. And so a plant like ours, um, which, you know, so happens to be, uh, and I'll fly my flag here until we're beat one day, but so happens to be the largest harvest facility in the state, uh, in the state of Louisiana. And, um, and, and I would say by Q1 of 2023, um, we, we will and, and plan to be a federally inspected plant. So we'll be the only federally inspected and the largest harvest facility in the state of Louisiana at that point. And I, I say that because the consumers, um, we, we kind of feel we know what they like, we know what they want, right? They're communicating to us uh, um, uh, often. The challenge is that I think a smaller mid-sized plant like ours has in competing in this space with, you know, kind of the, the larger, you know, the larger multinational corporations, especially in our market, um, is, is, is all of the kind of traditional business model and, you know, the, 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 the middlemen um, and who gets to choose what the consumer, you know, buys or picks. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's where we're seeing. And if you look across the agriculture industry, especially on the cattle producing side, more and more family farms and ranches, just like we're talking about Chip and I's today and his father has his own branded program, but more and more family farms and ranches are selling holes and halves off their farm um, or they're selling, um, you know, uh, um, um, inspected, you know, retail cuts. And why, so holes, why holes and halves across the farm right now? Because they can't get specialty processing capabilities? It's not about the producer at that point. It's about the consumer. And so the consumer is getting to a point where they want to know where their beef's coming from. They want to buy it off the farm. They want all natural or they want grass fed or they want, right, very specific in, in, in things that they would like to buy. And also they're buying it at a great value, right? When you look at, you know, beef prices as it goes through the traditional business model through distribution and retail and several markups, I mean, imagine the price of beef, you know, on the grocery store shelf versus, you know, um, an entire side or a quarter or like at, for our company, for instance, um, in our e-commerce uh, storefront that we launched called Louisiana Beef Direct, we have small curated boxes that are 150 bucks or 100 bucks or 50 bucks, right? And it's just a, a, an assortment of products that is at a very, very good value to the consumer, and they know exactly where it's coming from. Um, and so they can specify what it is they want. So going back to your question, Mike, and I know it's a long kind of drawn out response there, but going back to your question, when you consider, you know, producers and, and you know, our experience um, as a producer, um, we're able to communicate that message back to other producers as to what to expect when they're coming into a facility like ours, or if they want to launch a branded program, or if they want to sell sides and yeah. hold, right? We're also able to then communicate back to them, you know, yield quality data and grade quality data. And this information is relevant because it helps them test and check their, you know, their genetic program uh, and their breeding program. And so a lot of this stuff goes in to really support producers because of our own chip and our, our own experience there. 
Um, but I think the, the largest part that we're having to do in terms of supporting producers or educating producers is helping them understand the consumer. Because at the end of the day, we can't, as a company, we can't buy an animal or, or uh, you know, a, a, a livestock uh, for a certain price or a certain cost to us if we don't have a consumer base for that end product. And that's what we've had a challenge, you know, a couple of times helping our producers kind of understand that. But yeah, so I think we have a lot of experience both on the cattle producing side, but also learning more and educating the consumer side more. Uh, that's probably where we spend most of our time. One thing that we've really come to find out, we have seen that there are way more producers producing high quality animals than we thought, even more than we thought. We knew there were they were out there, okay? But as we go and we're getting introduced to more and more farmers, I mean, there's a ton of folks that are doing it right. You mentioned a really interesting point, Chip. You said you, you've noticed a lot more high quality producers than even you all expected uh, in your part of Louisiana. What defines high quality? Yeah, when we're looking at quality, I mean, we're looking at uh, yield and quality grades. So, you know, something that's going to grade choice, high choice, uh, even into prime, uh, but also, you know, the genetics on the animal. So how efficient are they on a rate of gain? Okay. That, that these producers can actually feed them, grow them out at a cost and, you know, and actually make a profit when we buy the animal. Uh, so again, it's a quality, not only the quality of the animal itself, but the quality of the operation, uh, the professionalism of these producers. And, and I'll tell you what, I mean, it's been really a nice surprise. Where, yeah. where, does, where does this idea of something being uh, grass-fed, grass-finished versus grass-fed, grain-finished, where does that fit into the metrics of quality in your experience from the consumer's perspective? A lot more consumers are really familiar with marbling now. Whereas when I was a kid, I don't even know what marbling was, right? But we were, we were processing cattle from our own ranch and, you know, eating it at home. And, you know, we were processing calves that weren't even finished, right? Just young calves. So uh, we didn't know what that was back, back in the day, but now everybody knows what marbling is. So the consumer's looking at marbling, right? Uh, now, for the most part, grass-fed doesn't have as much marbling. But again, contrary to popular belief, I mean, I've got some grass-fed producers that are, in fact, I had one this week that produced a prime animal, 100% grass-fed all night. And that, because he is on the top edge of genetics in his herd. Uh, now, look, he's got high input costs to get him there. Yeah. It's not like, oh, grass-fed is cheaper because they're just on grass. I mean, he's really pushing them high-quality hay alfalfa pellets, you know, all these type things to get them where they need to be. But he, he's really producing a, a high quality product. Uh, so when it comes to grass fed and our business, it's a smaller portion. So uh, most of the consumers that we've seen really like that, that grain finish option. It's got the high marbling. It's got the taste that they all know and love. Uh, so we'll, you know, we'll definitely go through that process and, you know, understand the quality grades and then, you know, translate that into what cattle we're buying. I think what we're still trying to get better at and learning um, is the consumer base and, and, and educating the consumer base. 
um, the consumer, you know, if you look back at, our, I think one of our past blogs, um, we wrote in, you know, uh, the, we wrote on the Drover's post, um, but it was basically about marbling. Um, and when that product sitting in the grocery store case, you know, your typical buyer, 80% of your buyer, uh, your consumers are going to walk by and, and chips, right. They're going to look for that. But there's the other, you know, 20% of, you know, of your consumers, our consumer base that are really looking for, you know, um, a different option. I won't call it healthier. I won't call it anything else other than it being a different option and something that they believe is a better fit for them. What we're trying to understand is um, the kind of split between that consumer base and, and you know, how to, how to ensure we're servicing that consumer base. Because today we have a couple of customers that have requested um, all natural product. NHTC, right? Non-hormone treated, all natural, you know, it could be grain finished, right? But it has to be all natural. And so, so that, that's a, that's a, 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 a breeding program, a, a production, you know, a program that, you know, we've been able to align a Louisiana producer with a consumer's need. And now we're able to fill that, that need through, you know, through our facility, through our plant. So was the e-commerce platform that you recently launched a, um, a reaction to consumer feedback? Or was it more, let's, let's try, let's try this. I think since we got, since we got started uh, about a year ago, uh, actually running production, um, we've had several friends that reached out to us, you know, Hey, I'd like to get this or, Hey, I'd like to get some of that. Right. And these are friends. And so, you know, we might make them a little box and charge them a average dollar per pound and, and we bring the box to them and it's our friend. And so look, it's a done deal, you know? Um, well, that kind of started to grow. Um, and, okay. and more and more friends kind of asked us, Hey man, this, this beef is amazing. The quality is, I mean, the taste, so many stories we heard back from, you know, parents and friends um, and, and, you know, about what their experience was with the product. And so we just said, hey, why don't we try this? Um, and so we developed out the platform and we, and we ran a pilot just to see if, you know, we could get consumers to, to kind of buy into the notion, um, you know, and I got to say in, in eight weeks that we ran the pilot, it was a very selected market segment, you know, very close to the plant. Um, we, we, we actually connected with another veteran-owned company to do some logistics work with us. So, you know, vets and ag, right? I mean, we're kind of um, working off each other there, but, um, but it, it kind of took off, man. And, and it really, consumers started to buy and they started to buy local product and they started to buy it directly from, you know, the, our facility. And they started to understand the value that they're getting there. When we were planning this business out, we knew that direct consumer was gonna be a component uh, so it, it wasn't just an idea that popped in our head, right? We knew that it was going to be somewhere, but we didn't know exactly how that was going to fit. The really cool thing is, like David, you know, highlighted is that it really came about organically. People just asking, okay, and, and a lot of it's like, hey, well, I want ribeyes, brisket, ground beef, bone-in sevens, and chucks, right, or, or, or rounds, steaks. Which store can I go to that has all this? And we're just kind of like, well, we're, we're not sure, uh, you know, 
we can order from the stores, but we don't know what products go into what stores. It just all goes through distribution. So I, I can't guarantee that you're going to go to any one store and find everything you need. And uh, so then it really got to the point where these people were, you know, dealing with us direct and, and getting really what they needed. And they can kind of get intimate with, with the whole process. And again, it, everything keeps going back to that connection, right? That connection to the animal, to the product, to the consumer, but really connecting those dots. Again, it's always that connection that we want to provide. It's not just a processing bottleneck, which, you know, the bottleneck is, of course, that's the glaring, you know, glaring thing that's out there, glaring problem, but it's also that connection to the consumer. And, you know, we, we were having a conversation earlier about other processes in the market. Yes, we're the largest in the state, but at the end of the day, we're still a very small processor. Uh, we're, or I say, very small compared to the big boys, right, out in the Midwest. Uh, so, you know, our capacity may be four or five times more than a local, you know, small custom processor. But the cool thing is, is that we all, it's a symbiotic relationship. What was that like, guys, coming into an older facility, acquiring it, getting the funds together to do that, and then, and then modernizing it? I mean, what was that process like for you? Uh, super easy. Uh, didn't lose any yeah, right. problem at all. Yeah, I let not exactly, not exactly. I let David go on that one. Sarcasm was heavy in that chip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Chip and I spoke about this, and um, you know, we were heading down the path, uh, Mike, to to build, you know, a brand new, you know, um super technical automated facility i mean we you know that's our background right i mean we were heading down that path and um you know raising capital and in, in, in order to go do that i think we were very close and i mean even that facility you know wasn't going to be ginormous i mean it was i think uh you know we were going to start at 100 but have it modularized so we can scale to two or 250 um and, and per that day. was uh, per day yeah per right. day um, so, I mean, that's, that's still only running, you know, a uh, thousand head a week, roughly, right. Give or take. Um, but you know, what we, what we know about manufacturing, cause our background's all in manufacturing, what we know about manufacturing is one thing. Um, but what we know about sales and marketing is, 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 is more. And, and the reason why I bring up sales and marketing is, as I mentioned earlier, we have to be able to find consumers for that end product. And so as part of that business plan, obviously, as you draft that out, is what's your route to market going to be? What's your channel strategy? How are you going to move product? Who's your customer base? What's your branding strategy? What's your, right, all this stuff. And all those things are, you know, they're heartburns for a lot of companies, even the big guys, because they have big competition, you know? Um, so we, we quickly um, thought, Chip and I both, quickly thought that it would be it would be beneficial to our company and to our brand to get a product in, out into the marketplace as quickly as possible and start building that loyalty start building that brand and start you know building that kind of consumer demand for the product that we wanted to be able to produce and then chip i mean you you've you've been the guy dealing with a lot of the the uh, modernizations and expansions of the plant so i'll kind of let you talk to the to that area uh, sure. And, you know, so Mike, we, we, we bought an older facility. 
but the facility was in good shape and a lot of uh, a lot of the you know parts of the facility are newer uh, and you know the really cool thing is we we had a kind of a built-in workforce uh right here uh you know really turns out to be just a great team uh, we've got a you know good core group of people that have been in the business for a long time and so you know they've got some best practices there that they've shared with us um so again that was a blessing in disguise is that yes there's an older facility that we were able to you know we were to get into the market right now and so that was a little stroke of luck there and then when we get here and then we you know we're really meeting the team and getting to know the team and you know we've got a great team around us so a little stroke of luck there um and then we're looking at okay let's what do we have to do inside the facility to, to achieve our goals and so we first thing we did is we just kind of kept business as normal as they were doing it for the first four to six weeks and then we just started to tweak here and there uh, first thing we did is we completely separated custom fabrication and wholesale um so custom fabrication is where we're, you know, we're processing animals for a farmer and we're just charging them a fee for the service, uh, which is, you know, part of our goal is to help the producers here. Uh, and then the wholesale is obviously going to, you know, grocers and restaurants and everything else. So we separated that. Uh, that, that really alleviated a lot of problems that were happening in that sector of the market. And then we started just upgrading equipment. And uh, so we've, you know, again, we've changed the process uh, you know, kind of the product flow within the plant. Uh, we, you know, redesignated different areas uh, of fabrication to kind of fit our needs. Uh, we've, you know, we've already probably, I don't know what, put a, at least half a million dollars into the plant, David. Yeah. Between uh, equipment upgrades, you know, I mean, from, from hoist to saws to mixers to, you know, whole VMAG systems, uh, column dump, you know, where we were having a dump beef, you know, ground beef into the hopper to, to chub on the ground beef. I mean, having to do that by hand, now we have a column dump, you know? And so all these things are, you know, necessary, I think, to achieve our goals, but they're costly. And so we've had to really navigate those waters to make sure that we're staying whole as a company, but making the upgrades we need to get to our goals, right? And so we've got this long-term vision, but it's a, it's a short-term strategy that's kept us going so far. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you know, Mike, when you think about it, um, you know, Chip, Chip's not wrong at all uh, to say that we've invested half a million. It's actually a little more than that, um, that we've invested into this business. I'd say we're going to probably eclipse, you know, a million plus here by the end of Jan, uh, by the end of December rather. Um, but the thing, the thing that, I think is important to understand is, um, you know, why we invested uh, back into our business. And when you consider that they're, they're the market available to us, whether it's in the state or outside the state is only through a USDA inspected product, then we have to reinvest it certainly seems like a necessary evil there and that you, know, you guys have learned a tremendous amount through that process. So maybe as, as we wrap up here, guys, let's bring it back full circle. If there's a veteran listening and, and he or she is deciding you know, what to maybe do following you know, over the time that you all left to today, you can 
your most important piece of advice as they look at what they consider life to look like after the service? Chip, I'll let you go. Yeah, so, you know, to any veteran that's, you know, that's transitioning out of the service, uh, looking to get into agriculture, there's a future here. And quite honestly, the future of our country is kind of riding on the back of agriculture. We don't, you know, we don't always see that every day. And I, I know a lot of times it's oil and gas supplies or, you know, other supply issues, but we've got to eat. We've got to eat every day. And, you know, it's on the backs of our farmers and ranchers and, and the ag businesses around our country to feed America. Okay. And, you know, to get into agriculture from the, from the military, it doesn't mean that you have to go buy a farm. It's very unreasonable. hundred percent right. Yeah. Yep. It's, I mean, nobody's got the capital to go buy land and, you know, equipment and cattle and then deal with all the input costs and then the long-term you know, return on investment. Not everybody can do it, but you can go work for an ag firm, you know, get into feed and seed or chemicals or, you know, uh, we, we partnered up with uh, LSUE, which is right outside of Eunice. And, you know, they've got a two-year ag degree that they're really targeting veterans to come into this degree program and then hopefully transition on to LSU, get a four-year degree and get into ag. And then we're connecting those participants in this program to maybe different farmers, suppliers, you know, different companies and ag tech or, you know, anything like that. And, you know, we'll be reaching out to guys like you, Mike, uh, to connect these veterans, but there's so much out there that they can do uh, in the agriculture space that might lead them into opportunities to maybe have their own cattle or their own rice or sugarcane operation, anything like that one day. So again, uh, it's much larger than just, being on the ground, you know, in a cattle operation or sugarcane or rice. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, so I'll many take, great points I'll there, take, Chip. I'll take it a step, I'll take it a step further, Mike, and, and be maybe a little more specific to to you know the the meat processing right industry. Um, and and talk about you know veterans or or anyone to that to that matter who wants to get into that industry or they're interested in you know getting into that that side of the industry. My one piece of advice to them is hire a consultant, find someone who understands this industry, who has experience, um, who knows how to write a business plan, who understands sales and marketing, branding. All of these things are so critical. And oftentimes we read these articles or we see, you know, something that Drovers puts out or whatever about you know, this company's building this giant pro uh, processing facility, um, but there's no sales or marketing strategy. Um, there's no route to market. They're just going to bring the commodity to market. Well, I mean, we all know what economics and we all know what happens when supply and demand get out of whack. Um, and that's the last thing we want. And so I think it's important um, for veterans or anyone who's going to get into, you know, this, this, kind of small to, to mid-scale uh, processing industry, um, you know, to reach out to those who have done it, you know, before and gain some experience from, from the tough, tough lessons that we learned uh, getting started. I think those are the most valuable lessons. And, um, and I think that would be my one piece of advice. It was such an interesting story, listening to Chip and David describe their role as educators for certain producers in their area. 
they found themselves in this unique and probably unexpected position in both time and, and in this market where they see consumer preferences in a way that some of their producers just can't. So like any military veteran, they found the opportunity and took advantage of it uh, by serving as what they described throughout the conversation as this connection point between the consumer and the producer. They also both described what I would characterize as a dissatisfaction by many uh, of their consumers with the quality and or the consistency of what's available in their local grocery stores. This dissatisfaction, coupled with a stronger desire to understand where and how their beef is produced, is driving consumers, I think, to places directly like Coastal Plains. And so as long as Chip and David continue to serve as this connection point with a quality product and an element of trust, I don't see this trend turning around anytime soon. We wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desa, and until next time, stay frosty.